Before we get started, I just wanted to thank you guys for coming back for another episode of The Places You'll Go. If you enjoy the podcast and want to get involved in the community or take a guess at our weekly photo teasers, like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ThePlacesYG. If you have your own amazing stories to tell us, feedback about the show, or ideas for upcoming episodes, feel free to email us at theplacesyg at gmail.com or visit anchor.fm forward slash theplacesyg to leave us a text or voice message. Finally, if you want more people to find out about how awesome this show is, follow us on Spotify and Overcast and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. Now, without further ado, enjoy this week's episode. This is a Wandering Hippies production. So we're back with another week of the places you'll go, and I apologize if the audio is a little weird this week. I'm playing with some new stuff. I've spent like the last hour trying to figure out what the sweet spot is going to be for our audio, and I just don't, I don't know. I'm trying to get rid of those clipping effects that are happening in our recordings, where like when we laugh or when uh, we say certain words, it goes like, all the way up and it clips off the recording and it sounds like your speakers are blowing out. I don't want you guys to go through that because I don't like going through it when I'm listening to the podcast. So I'm doing my best. We don't have like the best equipment. We're just, we're working with what we got. So bear with us on this. We are just a few more weeks away from the finale of season two. And you guys are actually going to get a bonus episode because I feel like I feel like two weeks off is ample. Yeah. yeah. Oh, great. So I don't, I, you know, I didn't want to take like three weeks off or I'm going to get out of the routine of researching an episode and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, not that I don't look forward to them anyway, but. Right. You know. Same. And then we talked about it and we kind of decided that the six weeks of Halloween is going to be. A standalone, like a special season. So we're going to have two weeks before that where we take off after season two. We'll do the six weeks of Halloween. And then we'll take another couple weeks off before we start up season three in November. At the end of November. So we're getting really excited for yes the six weeks Halloween. I love Halloween, guys. Yes, she do. I have more Halloween decorations. Than Christmas. I think we talked about this last week. Probably. But it's, it's listen, it's, it's, I don't know what I'm looking for because words. <laughs> it's worth saying again. It is. It is. And it's going to be six brand new cities, six legendary monsters, six chilling tales. It's, it's going to be a blast. And I'm so excited for it. And, this past weekend, we had a blast. We did. We were yes people. Yeah, two weeks in a row, guys. We, yeah, Lakin got out of the house two weeks in a row. Not just Lakin, Lakin and I. I've been just as bad about not wanting to get out of the house, so I can't really even hate on her. Yeah. You know? I mean, you can. I'll accept. <laughs> I shouldn't. Because I'm here for it. <laughs> Please let me stay at home forever. And then, you know, we're going to have to be yes people again this weekend because little Olivia's coming up to see us. Yes, my baby sister. Before she goes off to college, she's coming to see us. And I'm very excited. It's going to be a lot of fun getting to see Liv because we haven't really got to, like, hang out with her 
like one on one. Like I don't mean one on one. I guess two on one. No, nope. no, nope. nope. that nope. doesn't sound good. No, that nope. doesn't sound good. I don't like that. Just like you know, us and us and her, or like yeah. you know, away from the parental units. That hasn't really happened. Yeah. And for quite a while, probably I think it was winter, the last time she was out. Yeah. But we'll have a lot of. I'm sure we're gonna have a blast this weekend. She loves spooky stuff too, so yeah, she's gonna be down to watch whatever. Mm-hmm. But I guess we should focus in on what this week's episode is actually going to be about. And this is going to be about a a state that there's not a dollar amount high enough to convince me to live in. <laughs> but she's always pretty to look at. She sure is. That's the great state of Alabama. Specifically, we're going to the Shoals, which is the uh, Muscle Shoals, Florence, Metropolitan Statistical Area. In the northwest corner of Alabama. Testicular area. (laughs) It is in the rolling hills of the Tennessee River Valley. It might be the best place in the state to visit. So let's check it out, shall we? We shall. That's Lakin. And that's Chance. And these are the places you'll go. The places you'll go. The old yellow hammer state. What? Yeah, that's their state bird. I was like, what the fuck <laughs> is a yellow hammer? <laughs> that is It's that is too their... early to be dropping the F bomb Lincoln. <laughs> that is their state bird and it's one of their slogans. The other is the cotton state. Yeah, we know Alabama. And the heart of Dixie. It is home to the first capital of the Confederacy. And their state seal kind of looks like a poorly drawn topographical map of Alabama. You know, like all the rivers and valleys make it look like super wrinkly and broken up. Kind of like Kay Ivey and her politics. Oh. Oh. Okay. Suffice it to say, there's a lot of things that I don't like about Alabama. But the state's geography, its recreational opportunities, and most of its people are not amongst the things that I don't like. So, that's why we're going to the Shoals. Hell yeah. Yeah. So, the Shoals represents one of the most striking geographic regions in the entire state, setting along the Tennessee River in the beautiful Appalachian Mountains. It's just, it's amazing country. We've driven through this area a couple of times, and it's so gorgeous. So, as I mentioned, the Shoals is a colloquial term for the the Florence Muscle Shoals Metropolitan Statistical Area. Obviously, Florence, Alabama, and Muscle Shoals, Alabama are the largest city in this area, but it does also include Tuscumbia and Sheffield. And I might be messing up that first one, but it's spelled T-U-S-C-U-M-B-I-A. So, Tuscumbia? That's what I was, that's how I read it. Yeah, that's what I thought too, so we're going with it. Correct us if we're wrong, I suppose. Yep. You can put in our complaint section. That's right. Having four cities involved in this kind of makes it harder to cover the history in a, in a really like an all-encompassing way. But since Muscle... Muscle. 
since Muscle Shoals is the namesake of the area, I'm going to kind of focus on its history, but I won't really exclude any cool info about the other cities either because they all have really unique uh, information to be gleaned about each of them. So. Hell yeah. The entire area has been inhabited for more than 2,500 years with the mound builders coming into the area around 500 BCE when the Florence burial mounds were built. Then the Mississippian peoples lived along the Tennessee River for about 600 years. And after them, uh, after their culture's power kind of collapsed throughout the United States, the Cherokee and the Chickasaw moved in along the Tennessee River. The Chickasaw did not remain for long for reasons basically unknown. And they did end up resettling a little bit further west along the Mississippi River Valley closer to their ancestral lands, which meant that the Cherokee and the Muscogee nations became the dominant forces in the region. Neither of these peoples much liked European incursion, and the Cherokee fought the rebels during the Revolutionary War, since that's technically what we were at the time, was the rebels. Oh, okay. That was basically because King George had mandated that no North American colonists could settle west of the eastern side of the Appalachian Mountains. So that was the that was the border of the frontier at that time. Obviously, in the interest of keeping their lands, these nations did end up siding with King George. And I I mean I can't say that I blame them for that in any way. Let's be very serious. They were being lied to. Like they have been. Oh, probably, yeah. But at that time, I mean they're like, okay, yeah. we'll listen to this guy. The colonies wanted to expand further west, and King George was saying no. So at the time, they're like, so yeah, we're going to side with the guy saying no. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. The Muscogee kind of kept out of the conflict that was the American Revolution for the most part. Because of that, were eventually identified by George Washington as the first of the civilized tribes. But... They, as they lost more and more land, the Muscogee did end up siding with the British in the War of 1812. Mm-hmm. The Cherokee, on the other hand, were making inroads to becoming one of the civilized tribes during the War of 1812 and actually sided with the colonists in that conflict. So kind of a, a flip, flippy floppy. However, not all of the Cherokee were quite as as uh, in for the whole idea of becoming one of the civilized tribes and siding with the colonists. So a group of them, who called themselves the Chickamauga, separated from the rest of the Cherokee Nation and continued to bitterly resist European incursion. It was the Chickamauga and the Muscogee that claimed the area around what we now know as the Shoals and fought to keep it on more than one occasion. And as irony throughout history is a fickle mistress, it was this fierce defense of the area, amongst some other complex geopolitical issues that I'd love to get into but really don't have the time, suffice to say, Andrew Jackson's a dick, <gasps> that aided what? in the Indian Removal Act of 1830 being passed, and subsequently the Trail of Tears. Yeah. No, I knew that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It was no surprise possible. <laughs> and ironically, Muscle Shoals would then serve as a staging point for the forced removal of the Upper Creek, Muscogee, and the Chickamauga Cherokee to the Indian Territory, or what we now call Oklahoma. Just to shed a bit of light on the corruption that was involved in these actions, the city of Florence was platted out in 1819, 11 years before the First Nations were removed, 
and therefore they still owned that land. But the Cypress Land Company began selling plots to investors. And guess who the biggest investors were? I'll give you one guess. Old Andy Jackson and current president James Monroe oh. were the biggest investors. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Florence, named, which was named for the city in Italy, became the second of the Shoals to be founded and was incorporated in 1826, while the First Nation still technically owned the land. The first city in that area was actually Tuscumbia, which was founded as Ococaposa in 1820, five years after the founder of the city traded with uh, Chief Tecumseh for the land in the Tuscumbia Valley, which makes the city one of the oldest in the entire state of Alabama. Sheffield saw similar beginnings to Florence as a uh, land company platted it out and sold plots to several wealthy Southerners, including, you guessed it, Andrew Jackson, but the community did eventually fizzle out and wouldn't be reestablished until after the Civil War and was officially incorporated in 1885 and named in honor of the city in England. Muscle Shoals is the youngest and would not be established officially and incorporated until 1923. Uh, the area has been, been called Muscle Shoals for a, a really long time, and we don't totally know the origin of that nickname, but it's likely that it was for the abundant freshwater mussels that were present in that part of the Tennessee River and may have been some derivative of the indigenous name for the area, but we don't really know for sure. During the American Civil War, northern Alabama was very close to the action in Tennessee, but the state was pretty divided on the issue of secession, voting 61% to 39% in favor of seceding. Had enslaved people who were not allowed to vote, but counted as three-fifths of a person at the time, not added to the vote tallies of plantation owners, Alabama actually wouldn't have left the Union. Most of the states in the South wouldn't have seceded if slaves didn't count as three-fifths of a person. Yeah. It's a little fucked up, huh? Yeah. Like, they're not people. Right, right. They're almost a person, but not quite. Yeah. Gross. Northern Alabama, this including the area around the Shoals, remained largely loyal to the Union, mustering five regiments to send to the Union Army, with four of them being comprised of freed black persons. So the area around the Shoals didn't really have much of a dog in the fight as far as it came to the Civil War, as there were not that many plantations in the area. But after the South's defeat, the Shoals suffered just as much as anywhere else during the Reconstruction period. But thanks to FDR's New Deal, the Tennessee Valley Authority finally began using a nearby hydroelectric plant to run electricity to the area and improve infrastructure during the 20s and 30s, uh, which helped boost the economy of northwest Alabama massively. There's also this little house in Tuscumbia known as Ivy Green, which would in 1880 become the birthplace and home of one Miss Helen Keller. Of course, most of us know who Helen Keller is. But, if you don't, she was an incredible woman who was blind, deaf, and mute until being taught to read and write, and eventually she also learned how to speak. She became a major activist for the rights of persons with disabilities and also a political activist who campaigned for women's suffrage, world peace, and labor rights. She was a founding member of the American Civil Liberties Union, which we know now just as the ACLU. Cool, she, I did not know that. Yeah, I didn't either. I just learned that on this occasion. Uh, she was a pro-NAACP activist and a member of the Socialist Party of the United States. 
And she was so hated by the Nazis during the 30s that they chose her book, How I Became a Socialist, as one that would be burned in Berlin. Hmm. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? I had no idea yeah. how much of a political activist she was. I, just, I had also no idea. Yeah. All I know about her is like that. She's blind and she's deaf. And she well, learned she like, how to read. Didn't she like help create Braille? Yeah. Yeah. That's like, the, that's the thing I like probably remember her for the most. Yeah. Is that, I don't, I did not know any of this. Yeah. I learned most of this during this occasion as well. Because they're like, oh, socialism. Oh yeah. We can't talk about socialists. <laughs> Tuscumbia is also the home of the Alabama Music Hall of Fame. Since the Shoals area is famous for music. Legends like Aretha Franklin, Otis Redding, Bob Dylan, Paul Simon, the Rolling Stones, and the Allman Brothers have all recorded music in the Shoals, making Fame Studios as well as Muscle Shoals Sound Studio legendary in the music world, which is very cool. Super. Before He Cheats, I Loved Her First, and the George Michael version of Careless Whisper were all recorded in the Shoals. Oh, bops? Bangers. Yeah. I mean, before he cheats, like that's a pretty good song, dude. I mean, like she got it. That's a feminist anthem right there. Yeah, it really is. Like you can not like country all you want, but stuck it to him. Mm-hmm. So the amalgamation of black artists and their styles with white musical stylings birthed a distinct musical style known as Muscle Shoals Sound, which, according to Rolling Stone magazine, can be heard best in the song I'll Take You There by the Staple Singers which oh. is very Bop lying to the races I'll take you there You guys are welcome for that rendition <laughs> Muscle Shoals became the hit recording capital of the world in the 1960s and 70s and has maintained its deep ties to soul, southern rock, gospel and many other unique and influential musical styles and Florence is considered the birthplace of the blues, since William C. Handy, the father yes. of the blues, was born in Florence. So I need to be there like ASAP, because I love me some blues, and the W.C. Handy Blues Festival would be... W.C. Handy. That'd be so fun to go to. Yeah. Gotta be so cool. Oh, yeah. Sign me up. Upon the death of Rick Hall, the founder of Fame Studio, the New Yorker said, quote, Muscle Shoals remains remarkable not just for the music made there, but for its unlikeliness as an epicenter of anything. That a tiny town in a quiet corner of Alabama could become a hotbed of progressive, integrated rhythm and blues still feels inexplicable. Whatever Hall conjured there, whatever he dreamt and made real, is essential to any recounting of American ingenuity. It is a testament to a certain kind of hope. I was like, that's awesome. Oh my god, I have goosebumps. Same. I love that. <laughs> and the Anison Star said, quote, if the world... Quote, oh, <laughs> you said it. Quote. <laughs> Go on. Said, quote, if the world wants to know about Alabama, a state seldom publicized for anything but college football and embarrassing politics... The late Rick Hall and his legacy are worthy models to uphold. Oh. So, the Shoals has been indescribably influential in American music and is a quintessential stop 
for anyone wishing to experience the history of our musical uniqueness in the United States. And we love music, Lakin and I do, probably above most things in life. True. So the Shoals is on the short list for me because it's yeah, the birthplace I didn't of even blues. Know until yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> the birthplace of blues. I've got to. I've got to be a part of that. I've got to. But be we have to go during that. the blues fest. Oh yes, yeah, for sure. How, what would be more cool? Nothing. I I agree. So when we go there during the Blues Festival, where are we going to stay? Oh, allow me. Our first stop is the Strickland Hotel. This boutique... Pooty- <laughs> <laughs> We're keeping that. <laughs> this boutique-style hotel features 24 guest rooms, each with a king-size bed. Some of the rooms come with exposed brick walls with original redwood columns. But, like, cool, fancy exposed brick, not, like, trap house exposed brick, mm-hmm. if you know what I yeah, mean. Yeah, I got you. Okay. As not, a guest... Not dilapidated. Yeah, like. yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. It's supposed to look like that? Yeah. <laughs> it, it's a really perspective, isn't it? It is all a matter of perspective, because, I don't know, back then, maybe, when it was built, maybe that wouldn't have been something they desired. You're right. Anyway. <laughs> As a guest, you are exposed to the southern charm and hospitality. Below the hotel is a bowling alley and a restaurant. The hotel is located in historical downtown, and it has a beautiful view of Wilson Park. And I believe this is in Florence. Okay. I didn't write that down, but pretty sure. They also have an event room that holds up to 125 people, which is great for weddings, seminars, and business meetings. So, I had a really hard time finding vacation rentals in the area, but I did find one, but it had a crotchety owner that lived in the basement of the home, which has a really cool history, so I'm going to touch on it. Okay. A record company owned the house originally and housed the stars that recorded at their studio. Okay. Um... People like Leonard Skinner, Dr. Hook, Carlos Santana, Bob Dylan, and Jimmy Buffett. Nice. So now, this person lives here and hates fun. Okay. So you can go there, but no one is invited other than the people that are renting it. So you just can't... So you can't have any guests. There's no no parties. Well, that's not super uncommon for B&Bs. Okay. I'm just trying to give them a fair shake, you know? We're not naming it. So anyway, on to my cool recommendation, though. The Gunrunner Boutique Hotel. The amazing hotel features 10 luxury suites, all designed to celebrate world-class music, art, and fashion. They offer a 3,200-square-foot common room with a wooden bar inlaid with honeycomb onyx. Fancy chandeliers mingle with the original brick walls, original wooden floors to give it an eclectic look, which is a great place for weddings and parties of any kind. Hell yeah. They also have a really cute store that sells touristy stuff with their brand. They also own a few spas in the area that look amazing, so check those out as well. Awesome. The suites look like a goth girl slash cottagecore dream, so check them out. Cottagecore. Cottagecore. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds so metal. (laughs) It's, yeah, doesn't it? It's not, though. I know. It's very soft and mushroomy. (laughs) Jesus. Ooh. You're right. (laughs) Mushroomy cottagecore. 
All right, so let's recreate, shall we? Okay. In the Shoals, there are a lot of things to do recreationally, like river recreation along the Tennessee. You can visit the dam that provides power to the region. But there is also an incredibly unique site that I feel everyone has to visit when they go to this area. And that is the Florence Indian Mound Museum. Putting aside how completely ignorant that name is, this is something that stands right up there with Moundville and Cahokia. If you care at all about prehistory of North America, you have to go and see this place. The mounds were built during the woodland period of the area, so sometime around 500 BCE, and contain the most complete record of the ancient woodland culture in the area and arguably in the U.S. Arguably. Arguably. I think that either way will work. Okay, thank you. Yep. (laughs) At this museum, you can explore the mounds themselves. You can see artifacts from the Paleo, Transitional, Archaic, Woodland, Mississippian, and Historic Eras of the Indigenous Peoples of Turtle Island, featuring amazing artifacts like fish hooks carved from deer hooves. Super cool. Necklaces carved from mussel shells, Clovis and Cumberland arrowheads, and that is just to name a few of the amazing artifacts that they have to offer at this location. So it is a must stop in my book. And when we go there for the Blues Festival, I can't wait to go check out the mounds. Um, so if you do want to learn a little bit more about them, visit uh, FlorenceAL.com and hit the museum section. And it is right underneath that. Nice. Oh, damn. Oh, for entertainment? Yeah. Chance basically stomped on most of mine. So Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. Um, You can check out the birthplace of Helen Keller, Ivy Green, as Chance said earlier. It's filled with Helen's personal effects and memorabilia. They also put on a Helen Kellen... Kellen? Helen Kellen. (laughs) Helen Kellen. Helen Kellen. Anyway. (laughs) Helen Keller Festival in late June of every year. And then we have the Muscle Shoals Sound Studio. This will bring you right back in time. Check out the old recording equipment and the 70s decor that hasn't changed since the, build, since the building was remodeled last. Which I think that is so cool. Yeah, same. you just basically walking into a 70s sound studio, like one that the it, Rolling Stones were there. It probably smells like marijuana and there's still probably cocaine dust on the table. One could only hope. Jesus. <laughs> um, the, let's see. You can stand in a room where some of the greatest artists have ever recorded, like Willie Nelson and Aretha Franklin. Yeah. And as Chance stated earlier, the W.C. Handy, or Father of the Blues Museum, and birthplace is located in Florence. Here you can see handwritten music sheets and photos of the legend himself on his way to the top. Hell yeah. They also have a few golf courses in the area and Alabama. Alabama Music Hall of Fame, who pays tribute to some of the greats. Awesome. And there are so many sound studios there. There really are. Take your freaking pick. Yeah. The classics, of course, are Fame and Muscle Shoals Sound Studio, but there is a ton. Yes. So after we entertain ourselves with the music and and sights in Muscle Shoals, we got to get something to eat. So this is a pretty big area having four cities in it. As such, there are a ton of restaurants. 
And I probably had more trouble formulating a recommendation here than I have anywhere thus far. So I decided to go with two. One on the north side of the river, one on the south. I'll start with my southern recommendation, as it were, and that is Cajun's Seafood in Sheffield. I love seafood, and I'm pretty sure Lincoln does too. Oh, yeah, hell yeah. I thought so. And I love a restaurant that is unique and eclectic, and this place checks both of those boxes. They have a like this super cool crab shack feel to it, like yes, like highway side crab shack with super old signage that just makes it feel like you're pulling into a restaurant in 1968. Like it just looks awesome, and they have amazing food. But no restaurant in the Deep South is worth its metal if it can't make damn good chicken, and Cajuns certainly can. They are rated as amongst the top chicken in all of the shoals. But they also have some awesome seafood, like grilled shrimp, boiled shrimp, raw or grilled oysters. I kind of felt like Bubba from Forrest Gump there. Grilled shrimp, shrimp, boiled shrimp, shrimp sandwich. Shrimp's kind of They also have raw or grilled oysters, boudin, hush puppies, and the coldest beer of town, but I'll be the judge of that. Thank you. I believe them. (laughs) They're also a really popular sports bar, so be sure to head to Cajuns to have some spectacular food and watch the Crimson Tide take on Auburn to get the full Alabama sports bar experience and just go anytime to enjoy some awesome offerings of this amazing restaurant. So be sure to check them out on Facebook. They don't have a website. So there's that. Now my northern recommendation. I'm going to go with what may be the best brunch spot in Florence. And that is Big Bad Breakfast. They were established in 2008 by Chef John Currents. Who is originally from Nolens. A city where food is as important as water. And it shows in his creations. Cool. They offer all of the breakfast staples of course. From hotcakes to breakfast burritos, there's something that everyone is going to love. But they also make the best Bloody Marys in town, as well as mimosas and screwdrivers with fresh juice and Irish coffee, just like the OG San Francisco recipe. So after a wild night in the shoals, this is the place to nurse that hangover. So be sure to check out. Irish coffee makes me sweat. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, man. I love a good Irish coffee. I'm pretty sure we had an Irish coffee. Like, we were on, like, a... I don't remember that. Irish coffees? I don't recall that. I with you. I think... Must have been my other boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> I think the last time I had Irish coffee was at your grandparents' house. Okay. <laughs> but anyway, be sure to check out Big Bad Breakfast on Facebook or at BigBadBreakfast.com. Breakfast. So to have the need to nurse a hangover... You first have to find a great place to create one. And that means it's beer palooza time. It's beer palooza time. Tapping into your blues. I was trying. <laughs> no, I wasn't in my zen. <laughs> but my, my zen is blue, so it's okay. Yeah. That's all right. But yeah, yeah, I think you nailed it. Thank you. I'm proud of you. There is uh, one amazing brewery in the area that I was able to find. I couldn't find more, so I don't know. Maybe there were more. I only found one. And it is in downtown Florence, and everyone needs to take time to visit them. And that is the Singin' River Brewing Company. Ooh, but of course it is. 
This is a family-owned brewery gleaning its name from the indigenous name of the Tennessee River, which they call it the Singing River, as well as uh, it is an homage to the city's musical history, which is not ironic that the First Nations called the Tennessee River the Singing River, and then, like, the Shoals became such, like, a hotbed for music. Yeah. That's, isn't that, it's like, such a strange synchronicity? I love it. Yeah, I do, too. Rob and Michelle Jones both grew up in the Shoals, but they traveled the country before coming back and meeting on a blind date. Cute. Isn't it? They bonded through their love of beer and of the Shoals, and they brew their beer with the intention that it will be drank on the banks of the Tennessee River or next to bonfires across the country, and it really shows in the amazing space that they've built there. Wow. They have an awesome brewery with a very relaxing tap room, a music and event venue, and a truly perfect patio that come August 1st, so a few days ago, with the passage of a new bill in the Alabama legislature, it is going to be pet-friendly. They were allowing pets before, and then someone turned them in for it. Yeah, because people are fucking what stupid. What a fucking Karen. I know. People are dumb. Someone turned them in for having pets on the patio. They found out it wasn't legal in Alabama. But now, the bill is passed. It is legal in Alabama. Bring your dogs. Bring your dogs on down to Singing River. They love to feature skeletons or skulls on their beer, which I know. That's my shit. That's that's Lakey's shit right there. And they have really fun descriptions. Um, like one of their flagship beers is IPocalypse Now. Mm. IPA yeah. Apocalypse Now. Yeah. There's And the description for that is there's nothing like the smell of hops in the morning, especially in our intense IPA with a punch of citrusy hop flavor. And one of their seasonal rotating beers, whose name I fell in love with, Citracabra. Like oh, the chupacabra. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just like the mysterious chupacabra seen in the bluffs of Sheffield, Alabama, this seasonal summer sour is a legend in its own right with, with a citrus bite. Did you see the meme about um, capybaras? <laughs> I was I like, did. I don't know why they think chupacabras are so mean. And it's like the capybara hanging out with all these other animals. Yeah, and they're like, bro, <laughs> chupacabra is a goat blood sucking animal. <laughs> the capybara is what it looks like. Yeah, yeah. capybara is a giant rat. <laughs> but precious. Like more like a giant like uh, guinea pig. Mm, I feel like you're that's right with the rat. Was I? Yeah, I mean, I think rats are cute. Not, I, No one thinks that. Their but... face is very guinea pig-esque, I feel Yes, like, it is. You yeah. know? But anyway, Singing River Brewery has a warm and welcoming staff that boasts all the southern hospitality that you love to experience in the Deep South. So to learn a little bit more about them and the legacy that they're building in the Shoals, check them out at singingriverbrewing.com. And with that, we will transition into the first story. We are way over time. Didn't realize we would go this far over, so here we go. Alright, so this week I will be leading us out with my story as I chose true crime, but it's also kind of history, I guess, because it's it's old. It's a really old true crime story. Yes, I love these. Yeah. And it's called Running Over Tom Clark. Now, I do need to give you a trigger warning for this, as it does involve some graphic violence, descriptions of torture, and harm to children. 
So just so you're aware and prepared for that. Damn. If you're not in for that, just uh, head on past the commercial break to Lincoln's story. So this story takes us back to 1863 in rural Lauderdale County, which is where Florence is. Specifically in the Blackburn Settlement, which as far as I can tell was somewhere just outside of Florence. Tom Clark was a simple man looking for a simple life away from the war. When he came to Lauderdale County, he came from mountainous country, though we don't know exactly where. This is where his nickname came from, Mountain Tom Clark. There were actually two Tom Clarks in the same neighborhood, so the residents gave him the nickname Mountain Tom just to distinguish him. When he arrived, he also arrived with his wife and young baby. Tom had apparently fled Confederate conscription laws in some other place, Probably another state and possibly Tennessee, but we don't really know where. These laws were enacted uh, in 1862 and 1863 to bolster the dwindling Confederate armies immediately following losses at Shiloh and Antietam. They were not popular with most Confederate citizens as it flew in the face of the states' rights that they had created this entire new country to protect. Nonetheless, conscription officers roamed the countryside searching for deserters and men of fighting age, which was 18 to 45 at this time. Tom had a damn good reason in his mind to not be conscripted, and that was his wife and baby. In 1862, they were both terribly ill. Now, we don't know if that was due to the move from their original home towards rural northwest Arkansas, or Alabama, I mean, or if it was the illness that predated that, Mm -hmm. we don't really know. It is important to understand the strife that the conscription laws created. Initially, the laws covered everyone, but as powerful plantation owners pushed back, not wanting to fight a war that was basically started because of them, exemptions were identified. These included politicians, druggers, which pharmacists, basically. Oh, okay. Mine workers, ministers, and with the passage of the Exemption Act of 1862, plantation overseers of any plantation owning 20 or more slaves. Folks like Tom saw this as wholly unjust and simply wrong. Because he was a poor subsistence farmer, he wouldn't be exempted, but the wealthy politicians and plantation owners would. So Tom and his family fled. He began building a cabin in the remote woods around Florence and worked on nursing his wife and child back to health. Then the conscription officers caught up with him. They arrested Tom for dodging conscription and took him to a nearby conscription office to be compelled into service, leaving his sick wife and baby in an uncompleted cabin in the woods during the winter. We don't truly know what became of his little family, but I'd wager a guess they didn't make it. You see, Tom escaped the conscription office, and I very much doubt that he didn't at least temporarily return to his family, probably to attempt another flight further west. But he was forced to leave them in the unfinished cabin during the winter while they were ill, with no support network. I would imagine that when Mountain Tom walked up to that cabin, his heart was broken by what he found. This would sow the seeds for Tom's hatred of Confederates, and especially of conscription officers. Now, what we do know is not long after escaping the Confederate conscription office, Tom arrived in Clifton, Tennessee, where he promptly enlisted in the Union Army. 
That's why I suppose his wife and child died. If he fled the draft once and escaped the Confederate offices, why would he then go enlist in the Union Army? Right. Unless he had nothing left to live for and hated the rebels. Right. Following his enlistment, he was stationed as a guard in southern Tennessee near the Alabama state line. This was a time of deep strife in the in the rural South, as federal movements had massively disrupted life, and the Confederate Army, given its struggles for manpower, was encouraging men to form what they called home guards and non-commissioned militias to agitate federal armies and their sympathizers. The home guards would once one day transform into the Ku Klux Klan, but at this time, the Union simply referred to them as bushwhackers. In an attempt to protect people of the area, as the bushwhackers attacked and raided with impunity, it didn't matter if you were on the Union or the Confederate side. Jesus. Yeah. The Federal commanders ordered that anyone could enter their forts and camps, but absolutely nobody could leave. Since Tom was a guard, this was his charge to enforce this rule and higher-ranking officers strictly adhered to the commands and punished soldiers severely, like by death, for failing to do so as well. One evening, an older man approached Tom and asked to leave the post in exchange for a gold watch. Well, Tom accepted the bribe and went on his way. Before long, others noticed that the old man was missing, and they began to investigate how he could have escaped the post. Tom then knew the jig was up and he would be caught and executed as a traitor. So he ran. At this point, there aren't a ton of records as to what happened immediately after his desertion of the Union Army. But Mountain Tom was one hell of a shot with a Kentucky long rifle. And the scattered reports that were collected by Union officials of Confederate conscription officers being murdered all across southern Tennessee and northern Alabama would kind of lead one to believe Mountain Tom might have been involved in that. Yeah. This is, of course, impossible to confirm via Confederate records since they were horrible at keeping records in the first place, and the few that they did keep were largely destroyed when the Confederacy began to collapse. When Tom officially reappeared, he was one of the leaders of the most notorious gang of Alabama, known as the Clifton Shebang, known by folks in Florence as the Buggers. That is the coolest name. The Clifton Shebang, isn't it? Absolutely. <laughs> I loved that gang name. Wow, it's like the Sharks <laughs> right. and the Jets. <laughs> this gang was primarily populated by Union deserters who hated the Confederacy, but for one reason or another could no longer be a part of the Union Army. And they had re- the respective weapons of the Union Army that they would need, and they were bent on terror. They were the most brutal and murderous gang, by some accounts, to ever roam the United States. This kind of reminds me of Preacher and the the guy who kept coming to kill Jesse. Mm. I can't remember his name, but... Yeah, that big big dude. I can't remember what they called him either. Yeah. Yeah. It does kind of remind me. The devil himself. It does kind of remind me of that guy. Yeah. Like, he came home to his wife and child. Yeah. That would... Was dead, dead which yeah. we don't know if that's actually what happened, but we're assuming. Yeah. It's really the assume. only thing yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. So, on one occasion, Mountain Tom and some of his men made their way to Bainbridge, which is in rural Alabama, so Tom could settle a score with a gentleman named Silas Green. Silas, however, managed to catch wind of their approach and escaped to the other side of the Tennessee River. 
When Tom and his men arrived, they knew that there would not be time to cross that evening. So Tom sent them to uh, send his men to Green's cabin to gather firewood. As they rode up, two of Green's sons came out of the cabin, and without warning, the gang shot them both dead. As they went to enter the home, another of his sons tried to stop them, and he too was shot. Oh, shit. The men began ransacking the cabin for valuables, in the process killing one of Green's daughters. And when the last son that had been shot began pleading for the safety of his mother um, and for them to spare his life, one of the gang members looked down on him and said, Son of a bitch, you ain't dead yet, and shot him so point-blank in the chest that his clothes caught on fire. Oh, my God. This is, a, this is like men who have been pushed too far. Too far. Yeah. After murdering most of the Green family, save for Mrs. Green and one daughter, another of the gang proceeded to set the cabin on fire with the survivors inside. <gasps> Having heard the commotion, Tom rode up and put the fire out oh, and okay. scolded the men for attempting to kill innocents. Oh, Tom. Good for so you. So he had some good in it. Yeah. As they left the cabin, three Confederate soldiers rode up, apparently having also been attracted by the gunshots. And Tom said, those bastards ain't innocent. And he, is, he and his gang shot and killed all three soldiers and tied them to a nearby fence as a warning to others. Jeez. But from this story, we can tell that Tom wasn't completely a heartless man. Right. However, after April 1865, the residents of Florence forgot all about any kindness that he may have previously shown, and Mountain Tom's legacy as a brutal murderer was forever cemented. Just outside of the city, in the fertile plains of the Tennessee River, sat the Wilson Plantation. John Wilson, the owner of the plantation, was incredibly wealthy, and with the recent fall of the Confederacy, whom he supported, he decided to hide away most of his gold and valuables, fearing that the Union Army would come in and take his belongings. Mm-hmm. But it sure wasn't the Union Army he should have feared. <laughs> Late on the night of April 30th, the Clifton Shebang rode up on the plantation. They subdued the plantation overseer and broke into the mansion where they promptly killed Matthew, John's son, and demanded that John reveal the location of his wealth. The old man refused. So Tom stepped in. Tom had the man tied down and piled some books on his chest. He gave John one last chance to tell them where the money was. And when he again refused, Tom lit the books on fire. That's not where I thought this was going. (laughs) I thought it was going to be like a pressing. I did too. Yeah, okay. Mountain Tom and the gang watched as the fire burned on John's chest and offered him his life in exchange for his wealth. Again, John refused. So, Tom strode to the hearth of the fireplace and scooped up some hot coals, then proceeded to pour them on John Wilson's feet. Oh-wee! As John screamed and writhed in pain, Tom pulled back the hammer on his revolver, pointed it at the tortured man's face, and said, One last chance. We don't know whether or not John Wilson could even speak because of the agonizing pain he was in, because of the burning books uh, on his chest melting the skin and the coals roasting his feet but from the account he again refused mountain tom shot him on the floor and left his body to burn inside the plantation house 
They turned their attention to the plantation overseer, whom they had earlier subdued, Mr. Twitty. They tortured Twitty for some time, and though a record of Wilson's torture exists because one of the other men they shot inside the house survived by playing possum, we don't know much about Twitty's death, except that he did eventually give up the location of John Wilson's money. Man, like, just let, just let him have it. At that <laughs> For point, real. like, what? I what don't do care you stand about, to gain? Like, honor? You lost your honor, bud. Yeah. That was long before this even <laughs> happened, okay? You're right. And after giving up the location of John Wilson's money, Mr. Twitty was strung up in a tree early in the morning hours before the gang rode off. The, from what I can tell, the plantation burned to the ground because there's now a little settlement there and the plantation house doesn't exist anymore. So I'm assuming leaving John Wilson's body to burn caused the whole plantation house to burn down. They made their way into Florence where they celebrated their deeds and the success of their raid. When asked what he would do when the law caught him, Tom Clark exclaimed, No man will ever run over Tom Clark. Some foreshadowing. They probably celebrated a bit too much and bragged to one too many people about their success as shortly thereafter the U.S. Marshals were hot on the Clifton Shebangs Trail. At this time, Alabama was under martial law. The Civil War just ended and Alabama wasn't even part of the Union yet. Yeah. Because it took several years for them to return. Yeah. So federal authorities had permission to execute criminals without a trial. And the marshals used that authority whenever they needed to. I'm sure they did. The men responsible for the murder of the Green family and several of those involved in the Wilson raid were caught along the Federal Road outside of Florence in a ravine. Surrounded by marshals, the men made a half-hearted attempt to shoot their way out, but the authorities arose victorious and killed them all in that little ravine where they had made their final stand and basically just left their bodies to rot. Mountain Tom was not amongst those, however. As retribution for ratting out the gang, Tom and some of the shebang returned to Florence and tortured and robbed at least three of the citizens. Dr. Joseph Miller, John Kakelman, and Edmund Poole were brutally tormented late in the night and their belongings taken from them. Seven years would then pass as the Clifton Shebang continued to evade authorities and raided the countryside. In 1872, communication was starting to speed up and it was ever more difficult for outlaws to avoid detection. One fall night at about 2 a.m., Tom and some of the boys made their way into Florence to raid the homes of the wealthy. On this occasion, there was no torture or murder, only theft. As they left town, someone saw them on a horse and buggy and told the marshal, William Blair, who got together a posse and started the hunt for Tom and the shebang. They traveled the countryside on their trail for some time when they finally caught up with them outside of Gravelly Springs. As Tom and the gang were unhitching their horses, the posse surrounded them and demanded to search the buggy. Sure enough, there were tools for breaking into homes, stolen watches, and other valuables that made it pretty obvious that these were the men who had robbed the town. (laughs) Mountain Tom and his boys surrendered with no protest. They knew they were outgunned and outmanned. And the three outlaws were brought back to Florence to stand trial for their crimes. 
Why and were they brought back to stand trial? Tom and his men? Yeah. I, I'm i assuming this wasn't a federal marshal. Okay. Because <laughs> I'm assuming it... Well, no. Alabama had rejoined the Confederate or the Union in 1868. Okay. So martial law was over okay. by this point. So they had... They would have had to have allowed them a trial. Mm. After arriving in town, Tom confessed to the murder of at least 16 people. But this is difficult to verify as fact, given that they never made it to trial. You see, the night after they arrived, a mob formed outside the jail. The people of Florence had not forgotten Tom's many crimes and didn't trust the court to serve justice. The jailers tried to protect the criminals, but they were vastly outnumbered and eventually were disarmed. The mob brought the three criminals to a tall oak tree in an empty lot, which is actually now where the Masonic Lodge is in Florence, and lynched all three of them, leaving them to hang overnight. The following morning, the sheriff had the bodies cut down, and two of the men were buried in the town cemetery. But Tom wasn't. You see, the people of Florence never forgot what Mountain Tom Clark said back in 1865. No man will ever run over Tom Clark. So rather than permit this vicious criminal burial in the town cemetery, they dug a hole in the middle of Tennessee Street and laid him to rest right there. Jesus. Near the, nearby, they erected a marker that stands today and reads... Mountain Tom Clark, hanged September 4th, 1872. This notorious outlaw gang leader who boasted that no one would ever run over Tom Clark lies buried near the center of Tennessee Street, where now, where now all who pass by do run over him. Jesus. I think what this story tells us is that people do terrible things when they feel like they have nothing left to lose. And I can't say that I blame Tom for some of his early actions, I probably would have went sniping Confederate conscription officers, too. Yeah. But he spiraled into a murderous villain and became the very thing that he hated so much. He did eventually remarry at some point in time and had two sons before his death who ended up growing up in Lauderdale County without their pa. Mm. We don't really know how much truth there is to the story of his burial because it can't really be verified without tearing up Tennessee Street. But... If the marker's to be believed, every time you cruise down Tennessee Street in Florence, remember, you too are running over Tom Clark. Oh, God. I hope you enjoyed that story. It wasn't too heavy. No, it, it wasn't. Was, it was, I just thought it was a good old crime story. Ugh, makes Some me sad. outlaws. Yeah, it was... It is I always feel bad, like, feeling bad for the people that are murdering everyone. But damn it. But listen, man, we're all humans. We're all just trying to get through this. And yeah. some of us are a little better at it than others. Yeah. And it only takes one little event, one little teeter in the wrong direction for us us to go down a path like that too. Like Yeah. Truth. That's I, I, I don't think it's I don't think you should feel bad for having empathy, you know. Mm-hmm. But anyway, yeah. let's take a quick break and then we will enjoy Lakin's story. Hey, have you guys ever thought of, man, I really want to go to the awesome places that Lakin and Chance talk about, but it's such a hassle to plan a vacation and it's so expensive. Or maybe your thoughts don't necessarily center around us, which I don't know why they don't, but maybe you just want to get away and don't really know where to start. 
maybe let us take the stress out of vacation planning for you? I love to plan literally everything, and I want yours to be the next vacation that I plan. He really does love planning everything. (laughs) (laughs) So put my nerdy husband to work for you. I cannot wait to help you plan your dream vacation and make it affordable because we ball on a budget, so I get it. Plus, now is the time as more and more people are getting the COVID vaccine and states are starting to reopen. 2021 may be one of the best summers in recent memory to get out and go to the places that you've dreamt about. We're going to take some fun and safe trips this summer, and I think you should too. So visit wanderinghippies.com today to get started planning your dream vacation. And just wander more. We're back from the break. And that means it's time for something spoopy. It is. With my one and only. It's me. It's a me. So I titled this one, Super Original, The Ghost Bridge and Sweetwater Mansion. In 1912, the Jackson Forge Bridge was erected, replacing a covered bridge that was built after the Civil War. The 100 40-foot-long bridge spanned across the Cypress Creek. In 1996, the bridge was shut down to the public and later in 2013 was torn down, but not without a fight from the locals. Locals argued that it was a piece of history, but city officials said that it was the meeting grounds for debauchery. Debauchery. Needles, empty beer cans, trash, and other drug paraphernalia could be found at the closed bridge. Okay, there was some debauchery there. <laughs> yeah, All right. Yeah. Along with spots burnt out of the wooden bridge floor, where people had started bonfires on it. <laughs> yeah, let's have a bonfire on a wooden bridge. Yeah, so of course the city officials won and the bridge was torn down. But the bridge wasn't just a spot to get lit with your friends. You know what they say? You can take the bridge from the ghosts, but you can't take the ghosts out of the bridge. I didn't know they said that. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, they do. (laughs) They do now. Locals argue that hauntings are from satanic rituals, but even in the days of the covered bridge, there were ghost sightings. Bright lights flashing over the water and ghostly apparitions. People say that when you walk under the bridge at night, you can hear ropes swinging and people gasping for air. Oof. Many people in the area believe this was a popular Ku Klux Klan meeting place. The Klan would go hunting for escaped slaves from the nearby plantation. When they found the slaves, they would bring them back to the bridge and lynch them in front of the other members of the Klan. However, I could not find any record of this, but I'm sure the KKK weren't the best at record keeping. And I'm, you know. And if it was, uh, if there were still slaves at the time that this was happening, that meant that it was like during the Confederacy. Yeah. Like I said in my story, those records are gone. Oh, yeah. 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 So if they ever existed, I. They're like, whoa, no, we didn't do that. Oh, what do you mean? What? No. So many people have seen men dressed in their Civil War uniforms walking across the road searching for their company. Sarah commented on a hauntedplaces.org post about her experience at the bridge. She mentioned that her and her friend were chased by a ball of light all around the bridge area and all the way back to their car. Oh, shit. Yeah. I love that website, by the way. Yeah, so do I. The Ghost Bridge could have gotten its name from the ghostly fog that rises over the cypress as well. Hmm. 
but the unexplainable lights floating above the water might be another reason. Whatever the cause, the land where the bridge once stood is definitely an eerie spot. Yeah, I would. Yeah, say. so they they, they, so they said they tore that they right? yeah they said that they've Bummer. seen like UFO sightings and there's just like a hot spot. Oh, so for this the is just like this is just like a high strangeness. Yes. Low count. Or I'm like maybe people didn't quite understand what they were seeing. They're like UFOs. Maybe. How do been? I don't know. What 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 else could it have been though? Like, I know I know they love to say like swamp gas. But I feel like that's just such a lazy, easy explanation. Yeah. I just for... feel like there's a lot of things that we don't understand. Sure. We're just going to label it demons, aliens, or ghosts. Just to be fair, anything in the sky that you don't know what it is it's is a, a UFO. UFO. But it wasn't in the sky. Okay. So it was like a, okay, so it was a, <laughs> a ground, def, a GFO. Yeah. Or wait. A UFO. Unidentified UGO. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> so then we're going to slide on to the Sweetwater Mansion. In Wesley Hopkins' article, A Trip to Sweetwater Mansion, on vocal.media slash horror, he begins with a simple interview with an Army veteran named Robert Simone who founded Ghost, or Ghost Hunters of Southern Territories. Robert says that he is happy to go wherever they are asked to come, but he always loves to come back and visit Sweetwater Mansion because they always get great evidence of the paranormal. Yeah. The mansion was designed by John Brahan, a general in the Alabama militia during the Civil War, who died before the house was finished. Later, it was taken over by his son-in-law, Robert Patton. Okay. The mansion was finished in 19, or sorry, 1835, 30 years before Robert Patton became governor of Alabama. I was going to say, was I was like, I was going to ask you afterwards, like, was Patton anybody? Because that name, I feel like I ran across it in articles. Yes. Okay. So while Robert and his wife have many videos of flashlights turning on by themselves and strange, strange mists, inanimate objects moving on their own, the author Wesley needed to see more. So he went ghost hunting with the Simones. Robert and his wife stop Wesley in a room that they often catch really good like activity yeah. on video. Robert and Karen, his wife, ask the empty room how they feel about the potential new owner of the house. Shortly after the sound of a rock hitting something hard in the same room sent shivers down their spines. After further inspection, they found a piece of brick had fallen on the old wooden floor. Oh, <clears throat> boring. But they, it wasn't there before. They did a quick sweep of the room, making sure, like... Okay. That it couldn't have fallen... Did they think it fell while they were in there? Well, yes. But I'm go- I'll go oh, on. Oh, I'm sorry. Orbs I'm just are, so intrigued. It's okay. <laughs> Orbs are very common, a very common occurrence in and outside the mansion. After the couple asks their question, an aura or light phenomena can be seen flying to the area on the ceiling where the brick had fallen from. Oh, shit. This was all captured on video. The author then chickened out, and that was the end of that investigation. Okay. Robert and Karen are basically regulars at the old mansion, but okay. Wesley was out. And then he, like, sent the entire rest of his article trying to mansplain his way out of it, that it wasn't. Out of being a chicken. Yeah. He's like, no, it wasn't real. 
Oh, yeah, okay. Oh, okay, Leslie. He wouldn't finish the investigation, but... Yeah, because I, it, I think he was just, just like... so fake, I had to, to leave. He was just trying to do, like, his rational mind, like... Okay. You know, it could have been this, could have been that. Like, I'm not saying that Maybe. he was totally denying it. I think he was trying to, like, unscare himself. Yeah, maybe. But he for sure dipped. Yeah. So in the Times Daily article, Sweetwater Mansion site of Paranormal, Karen and Robert go a little bit more in depth about what they are used to at the mansion. They often hear doors slamming and even locking themselves. Shadows walking inside the house. They even mention a creepy room that only has access from a small window, which I saw an like an article about ghost adventures going there, and they really? said that the lady of the house, so I don't know if this was the Patton's wife or whatever, their son died. Supposedly, their son died, and she kept his body down there. Oh. But I don't know how true that is. Still creepy. Yeah. Yeah, it's... It's hair. It's hearsay at this yeah, point, I suppose. Yeah. But so they have heard children laughing and playing. Robert tells a story that he he himself didn't even catch until reviewing the footage later. He was sitting in the main parlor trying to make contact with the ghosts when the chair next to him moves on its own. So like he did not realize it happened. He kind of heard something, but he didn't know what he was hearing uh-huh. until he reviewed the footage afterwards, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah, <clears throat> that's really cool. The caretaker of the mansion has seen an image of a man lying in a casket with a hole in his head. She later found out that a wake was held in the parlor for Billy Patton. He died from a gunshot wound to the head. Oh, shit. The Simones love what they do and love... some chills. Yeah, and love validating people's suspicions. They are here to collect evidence and teach people that maybe there is more than what we can see. Some souls move on, but some never leave. Nice. That was, those are some good stories. I, I know there were I know there were like a few places around the shoals that have like hauntings, but they were they're all like there's not a lot of great information about any yeah, of them. Yeah, it's very hard. Like hauntings are hard because they everyone wants to yeah. talk about like what they experience, but it's hard to find like history and unless you're like in their library looking up right right unless you like go to like the lauderdale county exactly yeah and dig through all the records and find all the info that's pretty crazy though i yeah i know the bridge was like super disappointing because i was expecting there's so many articles about it and but I couldn't even really find firsthand accounts of like ghost stories. Yeah, I could just like from hauntedplaces.org is really where I found. And it's like always listed. Like every listing I saw when I was trying to figure out what I was going to do my story about, every like listing of haunted places around there that I saw, it was in like the top five. Yeah. So I'm like, I didn't dig that much further because I found the Mountain Tom story, but I'm like. I figured there would be a lot of really good stories if it's listed so high as being such a haunted place. Same, but I was, I mean, I wasn't disappointed because I found some good stuff. Yeah. But it was, I'm like, it was frustrating at times because I was expecting to find like a bunch of stories that right, I right. could not find. That's fair. Yep. Such is the, the ghost story life. 
Such is the ghost story life. We're just going to have to get our keisters out there and find more. Do our own investigating. That's right. Find some, get it, bring back our own awesome stories. Yeah. Hey, if you guys have awesome stories to tell us, you should totally tell us. Yeah. we want to hear them. We want to hear it. Hit us up on Instagram or Facebook or, or freaking Gmail, whatever. Yeah, you tell us your stories and then we can read them for yeah. everyone. We'll put them on the freaking show. Bet your bottom dollar. Bet your bottom dollar <laughs> that tomorrow we'll There'll read your stories. Ghost stories. <laughs> well, I'm just saying I honestly wouldn't have probably even put Alabama... In my, like, top uh, 40 places in the country to visit. (laughs) But after I learned more about the Shoals and about what it has to offer and the cool things there are to see there, I'm ready to go to the Shoals. Same. But to do that, we have to get off the interstate. We might have to take a covered bridge. That's right. We're probably going to listen to some great blues music. Probably gonna drink some apocalypse. <laughs> gonna meet some amazing southern people, and hopefully, these are the places you'll go. Bye.